I don't know about you, but the rest that just came from that moment was needed. And I think it feels so good just to take a breath and get in the presence of God and be reminded that he's already prepared that table for you. I wonder how you would react if I went around individually through the hundreds of people that are in this room or even if I could come through the screen and look at you all individually. I wonder how everyone would react if I told you, hey, I took time this week to contend for you before God and called out to God by your name and asked God that he would move in your family. And you know, many of you are looking at me like, you don't even know who I am. Just go with me on this. If I told you, I mean, and I don't mean like, a half-hearted prayer, like, God, please speak to them. I mean, like, went name by name through your family, called down for God to do something in your life and to speak to you and to do something specific. If you heard that from me right now, how would you react to a moment like this? How, how would that make you? It's like, oh, wow, there's, there's things happening in my life spiritually that I don't even see aside from anything that I even participate in. Now, here's what's crazy. Here's what you need to hear. I know biblically that that is 1,000% true, but not about me praying for you, about Jesus praying for you. Amen. Like that is the case this week. Do you know you have an advocate at the right hand of God who implores, he goes before the Lord on your behalf. And do you know Jesus is not the only one praying for you. The spirit of God is groaning deeper than any words can say. So if you showed up today and you're like, I did nothing to take a step forward in my faith this week. Good news and a great place to start from. Jesus and the Holy Spirit have gone before the Father on your behalf and have set a table for you today in the presence of your enemies. Come and eat, come and feast on the word of God. And so I, I just want us to feel the gravity behind what could be in a moment like this. And I was not expecting to do this today. Team, y'all can turn the clock off because there's zero chance this is going to be over in 35 minutes. <laughs> get, get really comfortable. I believe God's going to speak in a powerful way. And I've just, I've just felt the Holy Spirit every week in this series as every week we're kind of ascending more and more so in the presence of God. You know, we've been studying 1 Peter and 1 Peter was written 2,000 years ago by one of Jesus' closest disciples. But this is after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And Peter is a, a leader in the early church. And what he's doing is he's penning what it looks like for believers in Jesus to live in the world but not of the world. So this whole following Jesus thing, brand new 2,000 years ago. And Peter's got to go, hey, you still live in a broken world surrounded by people who are falling into their selfish desires, into their old ways, a world that is decaying, a world full of disease, a world full of malice. Thank you, Matt Cole, a world full of hypocrisy. And you're called to be the light of the world, a city on a hill in the world, but not of the world, a chosen exile. And so every week we've been, I feel like the presence of God has been taking us into new levels of experiencing him. And then last week on Father's Day, our worship pastor, Matt Cole, brought a word. Oh, so good, y'all. He did a message. If you missed last week, you have to go listen to this. He did a message called From a Pure Heart. And he got to the point in 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter takes the holiness that we're supposed to embody about God and makes it real and relational. And Matt preach something that I think is so relevant for people who live in the Auburn community. I know we got people who are living all over the world, but if you're not from the South, we have this thing in the South called Southern hospitality, and it's this thing that should be called Southern hypocrisy, because we're so nice to you on the surface and we open the door for you, but just know when we open the door for you as you leave, we're going to talk about you. 
And I, I don't mean to make fun of the South. Like, I'm from the South. It's great. But it's, a lot of that's external. We have a culture, even in the church, of so much gossip and slander and ill will and envy and malice toward one another. You know, it's so normal for people even in this church to talk behind each other's back. Some of y'all have done that about me openly. And, and I just wanted that message. I was listening to it. So we, Courtney and I celebrated 10 years last week. And you already clapped for that a couple weeks ago. You can clap more when we get to 20. Um, and it, so it was, it was an amazing weekend. But I woke up on Father's Day, and, and we were driving home that day. So we hit play on the gathering, and Matt is preaching. And I am like, oh, man, this is so convicting. But what was so powerful about last week was listening through, uh, the, I would say, the lens of knowing Matt and his wife, Caitlin, personally that they actually live out a lot of the things he was talking about last week. And, and that was convicting for me because a lot of times I'm up here preaching. And I'm, I'm, we got a young group of communicators that are up here. Many of you who are older, it takes a lot of humility for you to come to church and receive the word of God from someone who's 32 years old. And I, I, I recognize that. But one of the things about being young is I'm teaching a lot of things that I would love to be 100% true about the way I live every day. But I'm like teaching you as I'm going, oh, this is so hard for me. I wish I did this. Don't you guys want to do this? And it's like, let, let's all lean into this together. And I do feel like God is over time bringing more and more daily disciplines into my life to conform me into the image of Jesus. But what was amazing is that Matt and Caitlin have been a force at Auburn Community Church to call out gossip and to call out slander. And, and, and like being around them, I'm telling you, we hang out outside of church stages if something gets said about somebody who's not in the room, they will look at you and go, hey, you should, you should tell them that. Or I'm, and, and it's not in like a way that's like, oh, come on, you're going to Jesus juke me while we're just hanging out. It's not like that. It's like, I just really think that we should have a culture here where that is not something that the enemy can use to seep in and take over our church family. So if you missed that word, you got to check that one out. But here's what's great about this week. We're picking up in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we're going to hit on the verses that were the reason why we decided as a team to do 1 Peter this summer and call it Built Different. So if you have your Bible, hold it up all over the 1030. Hold it up in Birmingham. Hold it up all over the place. Hold it up high. Be proud. Look at somebody next to you say, I love my Bible. Look at somebody who doesn't have one and go, I will buy you a Bible. I will buy you one. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, I read verses 4 through 5 that I'm going to begin this with. At the very beginning of this series, it's kind of the foundational piece that needed to be put in place for us to understand what it means to be a chosen exile, what it means to be in the world and not of the world, and more than that, what it means to be a part of the big C church, the bride of Christ. 1 Peter's at the end of your Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. If you're there, say, I'm there. Peter says, as you come to him, that's Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Built different. Peter says, as, as you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God. So you're a chosen exile because that's what was true about Jesus. Chosen and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Peter is explaining what the church is. 
And he's going, the church is not a building that is contrived of all these materials and bricks and wood, which, by the way, please pray that the materials for Hamilton Road come in on time because we need that building done. And there's like a delay on everything. And some of you construction people are like, oh, yeah, I know. Trust me. We know. And we need those materials to come. But Peter's going, no, the, the, the church is not built of physical material that you put together to build a building. I think it's so fitting that the background of this series are the literal blueprint of our building on Hamilton Road. And, and when you look at that room in particular, that's the auditorium, and, and the seats that you see on top are kind of like stadium seats. Y'all have, you guys have no idea. You have no idea the building that you are going to step into when we go into Hamilton Road. I get goosebumps every time I look at the renderings. Every time I look at a picture, I'm like, what God's going to do when we're in that room. Like, just to give you a little glimpse, like, I, I love this room. I'm so grateful for this room. We're keeping this room. We believe people are going to encounter God in this room. And it's going to be a big part of it. But like 21st century contemporary black boxes with lights and smoke, not my thing. Like our, our auditorium is going to have windows and natural light. And like, it's going to be a holy place. If you're watching, you're like, I don't live in Auburn. That's where you're going to be watching us. So trust me, it'll translate to you. I get so excited about this. But Peter's going, the materials that God is grabbing to build into his house. First of all, he takes the living stone, Jesus, and we're going to talk about him being the cornerstone. He's the foundational piece. But you, as Jesus births something new on the inside of you, you are the material that God is using. So if, if church buildings are contrived of physical materials, what's the church spiritually built of? Broken people. Sinful people. Inconsistent people, wounded people, bitter people, depressed people, sexually immoral people, addicted people. The church God is building meets us in our brokenness, and he goes, oh, I'm about to make a masterpiece. Because every day I'm transforming them by the power of the Holy Spirit to look more like Jesus. And in this series, I've been so personally convicted by how quick I am to write off certain people. When the best work God does in building his church happens through the most broken, messed up people. It makes, his, it makes his body look better when he takes someone who's in a desperate condition, in a fallen condition, and goes, watch what I can do when my spirit is involved. So do not listen to what I am saying today and go, that's great. That's for everyone who's amening you. That's for everyone in a purple shirt. That's for everyone who's been attending for a while. No, it is for the person who doesn't even know why they are here this morning. That God is dreaming about the day that you would wake up to the masterpiece he wants to build into your life. And what's it going to look like? It's going to look different than the rest of the world. That's why this is called Built Different. Because we're going to start to live in such a way that stands out. Because people who are in the world but not of the world, the world looks at that and goes, you have something. There's something growing in your life that I can't, I can't put my finger on it. Boom, it's Jesus. And Peter's about to call him the cornerstone. Watch this, verse 6. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. Wow. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. 
Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Go back to verse 6. Peter's talking about Jesus, the living stone. And he says, I'm, I'm not making this up. This is, this is from the Old Testament. I See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Look at your footnote there. What does it say? Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. But then he flips it, and he says, yeah, to those who you believe, he's the cornerstone that you build your life on. And that stone is precious. The word precious there is so weak in our culture. It literally means valuable, stands out, like, oh, I, I want that. I choose that. I trust that. But then he says, to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, verse 22. Side note, whenever you see Psalm 118 on something, remember that that's the song Jesus and the disciples sang the night before Jesus died. He was ready to be rejected. But he says, to those who believe, he's the cornerstone. And to those who don't believe, he's the cornerstone. And he says, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. I've never thought about it like this. Cornerstone is my number one favorite worship song ever written. If I had it my way, the song that we just sang, we'd sing it every week. And Matt knows, I'll be up on stage sometimes, and, and there's times, especially at our night services when our college students are here, there's times where I just call for songs randomly on stage, and I don't even have to say it anymore. I just give him a look, and he's like, Cornerstone. Like, I know, that's the one you want. I love that song. I love that truth that Jesus is the, the foundational stone that you build your life on. Here's what I never realized, though. Jesus is your cornerstone, Biblically, whether you believe in him or not. Like he's the stone that defines your life if you're in the family of God or not. Because Peter's like, if, if you are, you build your life on this. But if not, you trip over him. Either way, he's the defining factor of your life. Never thought about that. And he goes on to say, this will mess with you. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. I, I cannot delete this from the Bible, y'all. And we have to confront it in 1 Peter over and over and over again. God's sovereign hand over the salvation of a believer. And when you read something like that, I know it bothers you. It's like, oh, people who, who don't believe in God had a destiny to not believe in God? What do I do with that? Here's what Peter wants you to do with that. He doesn't want you to read it and debate it theologically. He wants you to read it as a litmus test for where you stand. That's why the very next verse says this. But you! are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. So you don't read that and go, oh, I guess I was destined for hell. You read that and go, I'm invited for what's spoken about the chosen people of God to be said about me. And the great thing about God's choice of you being the decisive role of salvation, not your choice of him, the great thing about that is you can always come into the presence of God knowing that you were invited there before you chose to be there. And it gives you confidence because you know, I'm not banking my faith on a cornerstone that's my ability to remain in my faith. I'm banking my faith on the fact that God has pulled me in before I took my first breath. And he says this, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. This passage calls us priests several times. And I think people have a tendency of thinking of a priest like a pastor. And no doubt there's a special calling for those who preach the word of God. There's a special anointing that comes from being a pastor. But Peter's talking about the priesthood of every believer. So in the Old Testament, you had a priest who stood between God and the people 
Tell the people what God says and tell God, offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Remain as kind of like this liaison in between, this representative. But now we have Jesus, the great high priest who lives on the inside of us. Here's the thing. If you're a believer in Jesus, you are the priest of God. What does that mean? That means you're God's representative to a lost world. You are what the world looks at and goes, that's what Jesus is like. That's what it means to be in the family of God. I look at them and I go, oh, wow, that's different. And you've been invited into that because of the blood of Jesus, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Y'all look up here. Peter is hitting it again. He doesn't want Christians reading this to wonder whether or not these truths are true about them. And back to the very first message of this sermon series, I don't want anyone who's a part of our church to wonder. I don't want you to wake up in the morning and go, I just, man, we'll see whether or not these things are true about me. These are not truths that we believe that stay on a page or up on a wall or a doctrine that we ascribe to. This is something that is real for you as a believer. And if you're not sure, and if you're in a place where you need to know that the love of God has taken root in you, here's where you can find comfort today. God chose for you to be within the sound of my voice right now. And if he is drawing you to himself, the grace of God will be irresistible to you. And you will know, even though your heart will be all over the place in affections, you will know that your life was created to be given wholeheartedly to him. And if you feel that right now, even as I say it, you are a child of God. Congratulations, you did nothing. And he drew you to himself. Now all you do is go, I believe I'm in. I'm with you. And he's going to finish the passage. This is where we're about to live, y'all. Verses 11 and 12. Because he's going to go, in light of all that beautiful truth about being the chosen people of God, in light of that truth about being a living stone, he's the cornerstone, but we're living stones. Peter, what do you want us to do? This is the command. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You have a war going on for your soul right now. And that war isn't just about how you feel today. That war isn't even just about where you're going to spend eternity. That war is actually about the house that God is building called the church that you're a part of. And so we're going to come back to just honing in on those verses, but I want to give you a title 20 minutes in. I want to give you a title for the whole conversation that we're having today. The title of this sermon is called Zeal for God's House. Zeal for God's House. My vision for today is that we would have a collected collective united vision to be zealous for the church God is building around the world, but more so the church that God is building right here. So I've found it interesting that people who live their lives with the deepest convictions and the greatest level of purpose, if you pay attention to what led to them living that way, it's usually something painful and rooted in some kind of brokenness or a broken heart. Like, have you ever noticed this? We, we, we had a breakfast this week with a bunch of counselors from the Auburn, Opelika area. I mean, therapists who are in it, y'all. Full schedules all the time. And where the world is going, we need more counselors to rise up and say yes to helping people heal, especially with what we just went through the last year and a half. 
But we were in a room, and, and, and they were supposed to go around and say their name and what they do and wh- where their office is and where they went to school. And, of course, you know, I was there. I was like, oh, I just I got to make this a little bit uncomfortable. I was like, could you also, like, could you also say why you got into counseling? And, I mean, y'all, these are licensed therapists. So they're like, oh, that could go on a while. I mean, they are like, whoa, this could get deep really fast. Here's what I found interesting. Almost every single one of them, the reason they got into counseling was not where they happened to go to school, had a program, was not this is what my dad or mom did, was not, well, I just grew up knowing and it just happened. No, almost all of them, it was rooted in a burden and a broken heart for something, happened, for something that happened to them, to their parents, to their family members, or to their friends, and something that cut them so deeply that they knew they wanted to be a part of changing it in the world. So you, you, you're here today and you're looking for direction in your life in the kingdom of God. More often than not, God does that through a burden. And he breaks your heart, not on accident. He breaks your heart for something that breaks his heart because he wants you to be a part of doing something different in the world. And I just say that to a lot of young people who are seeking and searching for direction. And it's all about income. And it's all about your fit and your Enneagram and your what. It's like, where do I fit in this? You know where you fit the most in the kingdom of God? Where God bothers you the most where God pricks your heart and he goes, hey, doesn't that make no sense to you? And don't you see that and want to do something about that? Don't you want to be a part of this? And you're like, yes, God, what are we going to do about it? And God's like, you're the plan. We are the kingdom of God. And if you're here or you're watching and you're like, I've never had that. I've never been bothered by anything. I say this in love. You need to ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes. Because if you live in this world that I'm living in, that we're living in, and you don't find anything that breaks your heart, you are blind. The need is great. And I'm, I'm not talking about changing jobs so you can do something on the front lines. For some of you, that's your call. But for most of us, it's about taking what God's called us to do and doing it with a greater level of purpose than collecting an income or I just happen to have these kids or I just happen to have this career path. Now, what would it look like for you to do what God calls you to do with a deep burden? Some of the most successful business people I know do it for a reason that's not the bottom line. They do it for something bigger through their life because they're like, I want to be a part of changing this. Why are we talking about this? Here's why. 1 Peter 2, what we just read, is written about my personal burden that God put on me at a young age and continues to grow over time. Many of you know my story. I was 13 years old, and with a group of friends, the Holy Spirit got a hold of my life. It's a long story. I'm not going to go into all the details of it, but when I say we were on fire, I almost mean that literally. Like, we... We were passionate about Jesus to the degree that every day, we all went to different schools, we'd call each other and report back who led the most people to Christ that day. And this wasn't pretty. It wasn't, I mean, it was manipulative gospel preaching. I mean, in math class, I remember distinctly looking at this little kid next to me. And I don't know why he seemed little to me, because I was in seventh grade. I was little too, but he was just, he was small. And so I was like, Sean, I remember his name, Sean, do you want to go to hell? Like, do you really? Because you will if you don't repeat this prayer. And Sean, that day, he's like, I don't even know what we're talking about. But I'll repeat after you. I always think it's funny that if one day Sean gets in, he's like, Miles, thank you for telling me I'm going to hell. Um, I'm like, Sean, just say it. Repeat after me. And I knew the ABCs. You got to accept them. You got to believe it. You got to commit. And so, I, and so we were on fire. So I grow up 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, even 20, 21, 22. All those formative years, I, I've got this 
passion. I've got this zeal in my heart to, to follow Jesus. And here's how God burdened me. I looked around at the church that I was a part of in metro Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm not saying this today as like a negative toward them. I looked around at what was happening in the big C church, but particularly in the Bible Belt, and here's what shocked me and my friends. I found that the passion and fervor that we had for worshiping Jesus and responding to God as a living sacrifice and going, God, you can have my whole life. You can have everything. I found that not only was that not the norm for churchgoers, it was extremely, extremely rare, which the more I learned, the more it messed me up because I read the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, and I was going, there's no way that this group of millions of people who say they believe that should, that it should be that weird to look like this. And then I started listening to voices who were noticing the same thing. And I was like, yeah, it's weird. It's weird to be the weird one when the weird one is like the normal one. It's like, no, I actually believe what we're saying we believe, guys. You're weird. Like, what is wrong with you? And somebody said right there, like, man, I should have said somewhere different. And maybe you are. But I was like, this is crazy. And so I'm asking God, I'm like, God, why does this bother me so much? I was at a Christmas Eve service with several family members one time and just praying that somebody would get saved. And, and I remember sitting through this service and God blessed the man who got up there. I, I, with good conscience, I can't even say preaching because that's not what that was. It, was. it was 25 minutes of entertainment for the sake of a family having a convenient Christmas service to attend. And I mean, I'm sitting there going, hell's real, hell's real. Just give me the mic. Like, I'm like, it doesn't have to be me. Somebody, shut up. Um, I'm talking to myself. Like, I'm, I'm sitting there. That's the type of burden, though. And I'm going, God, why? Why am I sitting here on fire with this burden? Why is my heart breaking? And God's going, hey, I let this happen because this is how I feel. And so I let you feel this because I want you to be a part of changing this. And so there's a verse that embodies this. It's in Psalm 69. You don't have to turn there. But David writes, zeal for your house consumes me. And that verse is only famous or really well known because it's the verse that the disciples quote about Jesus in John chapter 2 when he overturns all the tables and the money changers in, in, in Jerusalem. Like He goes into town and he finds that in the temple where you're supposed to be able to gather there and offer sacrifices to God, he finds that what money changers are doing is using like a Roman Jewish currency to extort the people of God. They were using their spiritual position of influence for personal financial gain. And Jesus goes in there and he goes, this is a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. And the most kind, compassionate man who has ever walked the earth starts flipping tables, starts bothering pigeons, like, start, like it said, they said he made his own whip. Like he went, grabbed some stuff, made a whip. He's like, get out of here. I am cleansing this house. And so I would read that like some of you do, especially some of you who are like more outwardly passionate and you can hear some of them. And I'll be like, yes, zeal for your house consumes me. And I was so obsessed with that verse that it was the only time in my life that I almost got a tattoo. And so, and I just say that to kind of share a little bit of personal information. I know after Matt was up here last week with his tats, you were like, does Miles have one? I'm just going to go there. I'm going to go there. I don't. And for some of you, you're like, great, we can still come. Um, and, and you are the work in progress that we're preaching toward. Um, but you don't realize. And so, 
And, and, and just so this is not the topic of discussion at your lunch table, don't talk about this. Talk about what the Holy Spirit is doing in real time. But I do want to tell you what I think about tattoos, just because I know some of you have wondered. And, and obviously, you're like, okay, you don't have any, but some people on stage do. Here's where I am with tattoos. It's the same, same way I am with a lot of Old Testament law. The Old Testament law was given for the people of God to be a holy nation and stand out on planet Earth. All that God told them to do was for their good. And the freedom in Christ that we see in the New Testament is something that I believe opens up the ability for a lot of foods to be eaten that weren't eaten before and for a lot of things about the New Testament, particularly the dietary and and, and physical uh, restrictions on clothes, all of those laws. There's a level of freedom that comes in Christ, but that freedom comes with a responsibility. So Paul says, I just veer toward people with weaker faith. Like, if I'm with Jews, I'm not going to be walking up eating bacon going, ha, you can't have this. Like, he's like, I'll, 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 I'll be a certain way around Jews and I'll be a certain way around Gentiles just because I don't want anyone to stumble on account of me. So the reason why I don't have any tattoos is so that some of you don't stumble. And so you, so you don't walk into this room and walk right back out because you're like, I can't take that guy seriously. And that's not to say that you can't serve as a lead pastor of a church with tattoos. Many people do. That's just where my personal conviction came from. End of section on tattoos. Please don't make that the point of this sermon. The point is this verse, zeal for your house consumes me, is something that is so central to who I am. Now pay attention. Don't miss this. Here's the message. And here's what God gave me to share with you this week. I'm reading 1 Peter 2 about the house that God wants to build. And I'm seeing that the landing point is not Peter going, in light of being a living stone, build huge buildings and have worship services that are passionate where people are falling on their face, crying out before God. He doesn't say, make sure your church has this marker and this marker and this marker. He actually says something that doesn't seem like it has to do with what he just said. Look at verse 11. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. God was so clear with me this week. It was like, Miles, you are so zealous about building my house as an entity, as an organization, as a group of people. But you are way less zealous about waging war against the desires that are competing for your soul right now. And that's where you might not be as zealous as I am with the burden that I have about the church that God is building on planet Earth. He burdens people different ways, but here's where the common ground is. We have a tendency as believers to be so passionate and zealous about change out there, not realizing that the zeal for building the house of God should actually be rooted in an inward focus war to go against the sinful desires and passions that war for our souls today, especially after the last year and a half. Almost everyone in this room, because of what we've seen politically, what we've seen racially, what we've seen economically, almost everyone in this room thinks someone else is the problem. I'll make it a little more personal. We got family issues all over this room, and almost every single person doesn't think that they're the problem in their family. We never look inward. It's always, that's the change. That's the change I want to see. And I can get fired up in a room of half-hearted worshipers who are just attending church to check boxes, but God's going, you're not that fired up about like the food that you're eating this week. And I found that what I do with my body oftentimes is what I'm doing in my mind and with my soul. So when I eat whatever I want, I usually think whatever I want. And I've got very limited discipline when it comes to what's happening on the inside of my soul. And the interesting thing about that verse is that Peter wrote this 
Remember, this is the guy who the night before Jesus died is taking his sword out, cutting off people's ears, ready to instill the kingdom of God as a political revolution against Rome because of oppression. He still thought Jesus was a revolutionary who came to overthrow oppression in Rome. And they were able, the disciples were able to ignore all the suffering things. Because of Jesus' miraculous power, they never thought the cross was an option. So they're like, this guy tells the wind and the waves what to do when no one else can see. And when everyone can see, he's raising people who are dead. Get your sword. Who cares how big our enemy is? We got this guy. And now here he is leading the early church. And he's going, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter's going, oh my goodness. The war I thought we needed to win out there is right here. And the church that God wants to build in 2021 is built by willing, spirit-filled believers who are actually willing to look inward and go, okay, if I want to be a part of the change that God is bringing to the world, it begins in a ground called desire. And so when you see this word, you wouldn't think that that's the ground that my faith is going to be won or lost by. You wouldn't think that this defines whether or not today I experience Jesus. Another word would be passions. If you didn't know this, as a human being, your whole life is driven by desire. Your whole life is driven by what you think you want. This could be in your mind. This could be in your spirit. This could be physically in your body. And what Peter is teaching is a level of following Jesus where you don't just default go with the flow in whatever you desire today. And he's not the only one who teaches this. Paul teaches it in Titus chapter 2. You don't got to turn there, but this verse just went so hand in hand with what I'm preaching today. He said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So zeal is not a personality trait. It's a standard for people in the kingdom. And here's where the zeal is. Go back to verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. You would be off the hook if there was a period there. You'd be fine. The grace of God. What's the grace of God? God's forgiveness. He did for me what I can't do for myself. Jesus died on the cross, saved me from my sin, rose from the dead. I get to go to heaven forever. I love grace, 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 grace. And he goes, the grace of God has appeared to save people, comma, training us to do what? renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. In other words, grace is an inner power, not just an external force bringing forgiveness, but this inner power that trains you to renounce something and go against something. So it, here's what I'm saying. It's not optional if you're a believer. It is not optional for you to live your life doing whatever you want, thinking whatever you want, eating whatever you want, drinking whatever you want, and making your life whatever you want. If you're a believer in Jesus, this is standard, comes with the deal. There's got to be a part of your spirit that renounces something that you would otherwise want. Here's where I need to be very careful. Do not miss this. I, anytime this gets talked about in church, I cringe. Because some of you, even where I'm going right now, you think I'm saying something that I'm not saying. You think, I got all these desires. I got all these things I think I want. And great, finally found it out. Jesus wants me to push back and go against desire. 
And I'm telling you this, Jesus couldn't be more opposite of that. Jesus wants your slavery to every desire that dictates your human life to lead you to how he created you to come to him to come and fill every single desire. Because every desire for sin that is filled by sin doesn't ever really fill you up. It always leaves you more empty. But when Jesus come and, comes and fills, he fills to overflow. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When Jesus fills, it's the real thing. And so you being a factory of desires is supposed to awaken you. Have you ever thought about how God allowed you to be made? When we wake up in the morning, 99% of this room has the same thought first. Coffee. Okay? Where does that come from? It's like, I want that. And why do you reach for your phone? Be, listen, our, our tie to phones isn't about a social addiction. It's about a dopamine addiction. Yeah. What's dopamine in? Heroin? Yeah. Dopamine gets released in your brain when you go into a pleasurable experience. You want to know why you grab your phone first? Because seeing novel information fires that dopamine in your brain. You're actually addicted to it and you don't realize it. That's why I need that. I need that hit to go into what's next. And God created your mind and your body as this machine of, I want that, I want her, I want this, I want, I want, I want. And God, Jesus doesn't show up and go, yeah, you're a slave and, and you're a beast who needs to be changed. He comes to you and goes, you're a human being. I made you as, as this huge collection of desires. You wanna know why I made you that way? So you would see the fact that if you try to fill those desires any other way other than me, it only leads to more pain and more brokenness. But if you fill it with me, you get the fullness of life. This is a famous quote. That's why C.S. Lewis said this. Watch this. He said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're a Christian, desires aren't supposed to drive you crazy with, oh, I just keep wanting things that I can't have. It's meant to awaken you to go, hey, if I'm this miserable trying to find what I'm looking for and I can't find it in enough money, I can't find it in enough sex or satisfaction, I can't get enough status, I can't get myself all the right friends in all the right places and get my life where I want it, can't find it. Oh, wow, this must be something that points me elsewhere. And God goes, I, I am the completion of everything that you have desired. And it happens spiritually, it happens different. But you need to know this, your God is not anti-pleasure. Your God is all about pleasures. You know what it says in scripture, at the right hand of Jesus are pleasures forevermore. This gives me goosebumps. Every pleasure that you can think of on planet earth, the best food, the best drinks, the best feeling of community when you're with a group of friends, the best sexual intimacy, every deep pleasure that we have as human beings on planet Earth. In heaven, multiply that exponentially as many times as it is physically possible. That's where we're going forever. And they're all in him. Jesus is not the guy who's going, follow me and say no to everything you ever thought you wanted. He's going, follow me at my right hand are pleasures forevermore. They're pleasures that really satisfy. And on this, in this world, you only taste that in part. But when you really taste the spirit of God filling you on the inside, it's a new way of living. Here's another way of saying it. You might want to write this down. It's not about learning to repress your desires. It's about learning to redirect your desires. The Christian life is not about learning to go, stop desiring things that you think you want. It's not about that. And some of you grew up in churches where that's all it was about. 
Hey, what's wrong with you? That makes you dirty. That makes you sinful. That makes you a slave. But what Jesus says is he goes, take all of that desire and redirect it in a better direction that actually brings fulfillment. And that direction is called the Holy Spirit. So what Jesus wants you to do is he wants to take all that your flesh desires, that's the old you, it's who you used to be, and instead of giving you what you think you want, give the Spirit what he wants. And the more you give the Holy Spirit what he wants, the more you taste true joy. I'll say it this way. The pathway to true joy in this life is giving the Holy Spirit within you what he really wants. And what he really wants is oneness and union with Jesus. And he's the one who makes that possible. And if you're like, this is so good. How did this guy learn this? Paul wrote it. So explicit. Some of the most important verses in the whole Bible are Galatians 5, 16 to 17, where he says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The only pathway to not feeding your flesh what he or she desires is to give the Holy Spirit what he desires. And here's the saddest thing about sin. The more you feed your flesh, the more you go to the old you and do what that part of you that was done away with wants you to do, that man, that woman that's being put away, here's the saddest part. The saddest part isn't the regret that you feel the next day. It's not even the consequences of what happened in real time, and those things are real. The saddest part about indulging in your flesh is that you grieve the Spirit of God. And the voice within you who's supposed to guide your way the fountain of living water that's supposed to fill you to overflow is quenched. He's gone. And, and, and you'll hear his whispers of conviction preaching to you. Romans 8, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The misery of sin is not just you feeling shame. It's actually you feeling conviction and the Holy Spirit going, this is not who you are. This is me preaching to you, telling you, you're still a child of God. Come this way. But you have a choice. This is the war for your soul, and this is the building of God's house. Am I going to indulge what I want, or am I going to indulge what the Holy Spirit of God wants? Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the flesh. And here's the new burden God has given me. I thought my burden and zeal for building the church was just about creating a movement here in Auburn. And it was only Auburn because when I was living in Atlanta, my wife and I would preach for this group in Auburn and we found families in Auburn who were thinking the same thing we were thinking. We're like, oh, you're tired of church being this way? You're tired of, yes, let's do this new thing. And, and never expected to come to Auburn, but it was like this collective burden. A lot of times when you have a burden for something and the Holy Spirit's leading you, he'll lead you to other people who have the same burden. And now you know you're in the will of God. It's like, oh, wow, we got to do this. But listen, I, I, thought, I thought we were just building this, this, yes, God wants us to be a city on a hill, but just out there. And God's going, here's what I want you to do. And this, this is recent, y'all. This is just the last couple of years. Turn it inward first. Before you go and build this church that's going to change the world, make sure everyone at ACC knows you are a living stone. And the zeal that we have for building God's house has to become a zeal for everyone to be a spirit-filled believer. I don't want that to be rare. I want it to be yours. I don't want you to point to the people who are amening me going, they're spirit-filled. No, I want you to know the Holy Spirit's within you. And so our zeal has just shifted from how do we build this thing to how do we make sure the people who are already a part of what we built know how to walk by the Spirit. 
So my message right now should be over, and time-wise it should, but guess what? We're off next week, okay? I'm taking bonus time today, all right? I'm sitting here, I'm going, I could pray right now and go, that's it, y'all, walk by the Spirit, and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Do it. That's it. The first time I read that verse, I was like, this is what I've been looking for all over the Bible, and it's been there the whole time. Here's the problem. The vast majority of this room has no idea what that means when you wake up tomorrow morning. So we can have this huge message of inspiration about having zeal for building the house of God. But no real direction for what that means on a daily basis. And so I want to close this message giving you practical tools for how to live this out every day of your life. This is seriously, it's going to go from so much inspiration to just, this is what I want you to do tomorrow and the next day and the next day. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Here's what it means. And note takers, you're going to love this. It means doing something daily, in the morning, in the daytime, and in the evening. And this little flashing thing is telling me that the screen might be about to go out. So guys, save me. And if they're loud back there, ignore it. Um, so we're going fill in the blank, y'all. Any of y'all grow up in churches where your pastor did fill in the blank, and then he would skip one? And so you got to like find him after the service and go, I got to have this blank. You never said this. I promise even if we can't get it up there and the screen goes out, you are going to have it in your notes. Here it is. You ready? Three things. Something to do in the morning, something to do in the daytime, something to do in the evening. This is all about walking by the Spirit and letting your life become the house of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says in Corinthians. Morning is for abiding in Jesus through solitude. Morning is for abiding in Jesus through solitude. This is a point that we have been hammering home for the last couple of months. Solitude is the willful act of being alone. Most people who end up lonely or by themselves end up there because people deserted them or circumstances made them withdraw. Solitude is going, I am intentionally making sure I have a point of my life that is lonely. And my purpose is this, abiding in Jesus. John 15, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. So what we're doing in the morning we're getting alone with Jesus long enough for his life to fill our lives. But you need to know, you have permission for this to look different for you based on your schedule than what it looks like for me. And you have permission for this to be different in different seasons of life. So so many people, when you think about that one, you're like, okay, you're telling me again to get to my secret spot. And I think you should have a consistent spot. None of that's bad. Courtney and I have this chair in our living room that we call the holy chair. And she meets with Jesus there. And if she's not there, I do it. But listen, it doesn't have to be trendy Christianity. I need my Bible and coffee and new morning mercies. Like it doesn't, it doesn't have to be that. Sometimes like for me this week, I went for a run and I'm listening to a sermon. I'm listening to the word of God preached. And I get to the end of that run, and I just feel this closeness with Jesus. And, and, and there's this hill in my neighborhood and, like, a pond right below it. I just climb that hill and sit there with God for 10 minutes. And the purpose of that time is to remember my identity as a child of God and ask the Holy Spirit to fill me to overflow again. Here's a secret gold directional verse that Jesus gave. When Jesus taught how to pray... He said, you know how to give good gifts to your kids, talking to parents, how, and you're evil. How much more will my heavenly Father, who's truly good, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Do you guys see what Jesus did there? It would be like a teacher going, hey, here's the study guide. Here's what you need to do. There's one question. And then he goes, the answer is C. And you're like, what? It's C. And, and you'd be like, so I don't need to study anymore. Like, 
Okay, you just told me, Jesus said, you fathers, you know how to give your kids good gifts. My dad knows how to give you the Holy Spirit if you ask. He's telling you what to ask for. So you can ask for anything, but Jesus is going, if you ask for one thing, make sure you ask the Holy Spirit to come and fill you, and your Father's going to give you that. Why do I need the Holy Spirit to come and fill me? I thought I was already filled at belief. You are, but it's possible to be filled with living waters that have stopped flowing. And it's also possible to have your heart enlarged from within and go and think Grinch. Okay, you're like, I'm filled to overflow with the love of God. And it happens by putting on your identity as a child of God that was already freely given to you. If you come to Jesus based on your performance yesterday, you will never fully come to Jesus. So abiding, when Jesus says, remain in my love, this is what's beautiful. The morning is never, ever about climbing a mountain of you declaring your love for God. It's about remembering that you're already loved and remaining in his love and receiving and making sure your soul is filled with your identity in Christ. And the screen went out and our focus is still here. We're going to get to the middle one, and I'm going to tell you this slowly so that you can write this down, but I would just ask that you would tune into this moment. And team, whatever you can do to not make this moment distracting would be awesome. I don't know what decisions you're making, and I hate being on stage when you're making them, but just make sure that they're as least distracting as possible. You guys see? You're like, I would never want to work there. <laughs> we love Jesus. Okay. Here's, here's the problem with ACC people and with me. We talk so heavily about what we do in the morning and abiding in Jesus and spiritual disciplines of being alone with God. But for most of us, we forget that what happens when you leave the secret place is not a peace that has to be fleeting during your day. So I don't know what your day looks like, but for me, I go from sitting by that still water near my house to inside my house, and I hear the same sound almost every morning. This is how my day starts. Daddy! I went poopy, and it's a big deal because Aniston had all these stomach issues, and so we still celebrate every time she goes like, awesome, that you just went from the peace of being filled with the Holy Spirit to you've got a family to be a part of, and you've got a staff to lead, and I don't know what it is for you, but it, it, I think a common ground in this room is Jesus can feel so close in that morning time of abiding. Then you get going in your day, and it's like, what happened? And then you get to the night, and you're like, I... I don't even remember that I spent time with God today. And here's a step that you're missing. A lot of people and a lot of good-meaning preachers will tell you that during the day, you need to keep retreating. And you need to keep going back to the secret place. Go to the bathroom for two minutes, turn your phone off and pray. And look, all that's awesome. I do think we need to return to abiding during the day. But the way I'm basing these three things is not on my opinion. I'm looking at our rabbi, Jesus, and emulating him. So Jesus doesn't do that. He goes away, retreats to be alone with the Father, and then he returns in power with a level of focus. So here's the second one, daytime. Good, we got it. Oh, put it up before I said it. All right. Um, interacting. Can we just give it up for our team back there? I don't want them to think I'm hating on them. It's great. Daytime is for interacting with God through present awareness. This is huge. So maybe it's not about, God, please give me that peace that I had when I was in your presence. It's about, God, help me to pay attention to where you're working. The best way to fight temptation, I think, personally, is to stop fighting temptation. The best way to fight temptation is to live on mission. And then you won't even flirt with temptation because you're like, this is what God's doing all around me, and I get to participate in it. And so I've found that when I spend my life going, no, don't want that, I don't necessarily stay away from that. Legalism always leads to lawlessness. I don't know if you realize that. 
So when you, when you repress desire, you will always eventually indulge in it the more that you withhold. But when you indulge God's desire and the Holy Spirit's desire for the world, which is what? The people around you. So it's about a constant. What does it mean to pray without ceasing? It doesn't mean to pray all the time in a closet. It means to spend your day in present awareness going, Father, where are you working? Where are you working in this conversation that I can't even see? Maybe mid-conversation in your company when you come to a challenge that you don't know how you're going to solve and you don't know how you're going to handle, you call on the Holy Spirit mid-meeting to go, help us. His title is helper. And so you're like, okay, this is bigger. I did this this week. This is bigger than us. Help. Like, come fill this moment. Or maybe it's a conversation with somebody who God opens a door and you would normally not notice it, but because you're aware and you're going, God, I'm just open. I'm paying attention. Even though my job or or my role with my kids has nothing to do with the kingdom of God or with full-time ministry on paper, I am a walking, talking, living, breathing representative of the kingdom of God, and I'm paying attention. So I know where I need to step into a moment, or I look for the eyes of someone at a drive through window who just needs an encouraging word or an extra $5 bill or someone who's paying attention. You start living your life like that, following Jesus is an adventure to look forward to, not so boring that you spend all your time fantasizing about sin. For some of you, following Jesus is boring. It's like, why would I want to do that instead of that? but you're not tasting the adventure of what it's like to be used for the glory of God. Guy, I've been reading a lot of his stuff lately. He's a theologian named Dallas Willard. And he said this, he said, look for where the hand of God is at work and join in. That's what Jesus did. When Jesus showed up to a situation, every time he heals someone, look for the language. It says he saw him. He saw her. Power goes out for him, from him to heal a woman who had been bleeding for all those years. And he's like, I got to stop because I'm aware of where my father is at work. You don't have to be Jesus to live like this. You have to have the life of Jesus living on the inside of you, and the Holy Spirit's going, hey, do this, do this, be quick. And you're not going to be perfect. Be quick to repent when you're not paying attention. But think about heaven. In heaven, I'm I'm sure that the moments we're going to look back on with the most oh, I wish I could go back and do that differently. It's all the opportunities we miss that we didn't know were right in front of our face because we weren't paying attention. So your day is about, I'm, I'm constantly interacting with God and paying attention to where the Father is already working so I can participate and join in. And sometimes it looks like a prayer meeting and sometimes it looks like Bible study, but more often than not, it looks like real life, unrelated to all of those things, paying attention to what the Spirit of God is doing and somehow joining in. Morning, abiding in Jesus through solitude, daytime, interacting with God through present awareness, evening. This is the one I went back and forth on the most, but I truly believe in this. Redeeming your time through intentionality. Redeeming your time through intentionality. Most of the time, our days don't fall apart because we didn't abide in the morning. They fall apart because we wasted time the night before. In the Jewish calendar or the Jewish mindset, your day begins when the sun goes down at night. It's when the next day starts to begin. So I found for me, I I thought a lot of things I could say about Jesus' nights and how he spent those. But I just noticed the commonality I see is purpose. And what I see in me and what I see in our people is a lot of wasted evenings. Why? Because we were so anxious all day long. We had so much going on. We get to the end of our day and all we want to do is numb ourselves. So we look to Netflix, we look to our phone, we look to a drink, we look to something to go, make this go away. Better way, be intentional. 
And, and I'm not saying every night go out and do something that's, we got community group and we got this, we got that. And nights just look so different depending on your season and schedule. But what would it look like to make sure none of them happen by default or by accident? What would it look like to have a conversation? And I would say Courtney and I have gotten really good about this of knowing, are we watching this together tonight because we're just vegging out trying to numb ourselves? Or are we doing this because we enjoy time with one another and this is good for us to laugh and spend time together? There's a huge difference. And only you know that about your marriage. Only you know that about the state of your spirit. I'm just saying go into your night and actually do it on purpose. And you will find over and over and over again your soul replenished in the morning when you wake up when you didn't spend time that night scrolling, staying up for no reason, having your mind racing with anxiety all because you fueled it to be that way. So here's the secret. Everybody look up here, I promise. I know I went so long today, but I just know people need this. Here's the secret to walking by the Spirit. It is not coming down and me laying a hand on you and you falling out. I'm not saying you can't encounter the Holy Spirit that way. I'm saying bad teaching. The way to walk by the Spirit is this. Make your life more normal for these three things to happen than it is rare, and watch the collective power that grows over time when five days, six days out of a week, you did this, and that turned into like, 25 days, 26 days of the month that turned into like, this is the vast majority of your days in a year. And then you put years on top of each other. You know what you have? A spirit-filled life. Because you're not trying to do what Jesus did without living the way Jesus lived. And this is how he lived. So I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of flesh. If you live like this, sin will look like the slime that it really is on the surface. You will desire God. You will desire purpose. But it doesn't happen when we build up enough spiritual inertia to go, let's take the world for the kingdom of God. Zeal for your house will consume me. God goes, hey, take that zeal and think about what you're doing every day. Because what you and I do with our day and what you and I do with our attention become the lives that we live. You know, your life is the collection of what you did today and what you paid attention to today. And that's why all throughout the life of Jesus, Jesus is saying things like, look, behold, pay attention. Don't miss this. Don't, I tell you the truth. That's a way of building up your statement of going, you better pay attention. And Jesus is going, pay attention to me. This is how I walk by the Spirit. And so I hope this was not only helpful, I hope it was encouraging and inviting for every person in the life of our church to live a spirit-filled life. You can put your notes away, wherever you're joining us from. I just wanna invite you to stand in this moment. And I want us to have a space where we invite the spirit of God to speak. Everybody present, aware of what God's doing in this room. And let's just do business with God. If you need to apologize to God for the way you have been flippant about his presence in your life, now is the time to do that. But with heads bowed, eyes closed all over this place, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just admit out loud that your Holy Spirit can translate things in a moment that is so much better than anything I can pray or say right now. So I pray that individually, every person listening to me right now knows what they need to do with what they have just heard. God, I so want your bride to reign and bring the kingdom of God like never before. You know that. You put that in me. 
God, I pray that the zeal of this body of believers would be to know you intimately, personally, to walk with you, to be used for your glory in ways that we never thought possible, and to not waste our lives on anything less than the pleasures of God. So Father, we come to you right now and we just feast on your presence. There is no place we would rather be than where your spirit is moving. Help us to pay attention. Help us to be that church. Help us with broken hearts, with burdened hearts, to be that city on a hill. Let it start with us, God. We give you this moment. I just ask you right now that you would move in someone's life individually and they wouldn't miss it. We give you this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.